Well, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to somebody right in this room. We had just finished up one of the uh, at-the-table events, and we were having a conversation. And, and at that event, I had made the comment that if, if I were to be asked, like, how many of our families are wrestling with issues directly in their families that are affecting them when it comes to gender, when it comes to identity, I threw out the number. I, I'm going to guess about one in four of our families who have kids, have at least one kid who is exploring different identities. Well, um, after we were having that conversation here at the table, uh, someone came up who was in, in the room at the time. They, they came up to me at one of the services at the community center. And they said, Chris, you know, you, you were saying that statistic one in four. She goes, at our table, it was all of us. It was, it was 100% at, at our table. This conversation that we've been having for the last seven weeks, it really is a conversation that matters. It's, it's affecting us directly. It's affecting us indirectly. It's a really important conversation. And if you are just joining us, um, this is part eight in an eight-part series on gender and identity. And seven weeks ago, when we started the service right here, right here in, in this room, when we started the service, we started with a heartfelt thank you. A heartfelt thank you for being a congregation that not only supports this, but is, is trying your absolute best to say, how do we do this well? How do we represent God well in these conversations and in this culture? Um, I thought it would be appropriate for us to start this first series or this last message in the series the same way. And if you're taking notes, this is, I think, worth writing down. Thank you. Thank you for engaging well in this important and ongoing conversation. Thank you. Throughout the last seven weeks, we, we have been engaging, I believe, about as well as, as you can engage. People asking questions, people expressing their opinions, um, diving in because it's important and it's ongoing. As I said, as we launched a series, I don't know of any topic right now that's causing more pain or confusion or conflict in, in people's lives than, than this one. So thank you. Thank you for creating a safe but also a challenging place to have difficult conversations. Well, over the last seven weeks, we have covered a lot of ground. We opened with a commitment to remain anchored to the scriptures, and we worked our way through Psalm 139, which reminds us that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We are seen, we're known, we're loved by our Creator. In week two, we laid the foundation for conversations that were to come by taking another look at that origin story that we find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where God created a man, God created a woman in his image, and he declared what he had done was not just good, it was, it was very good. In week three, we talked about the significance of an event that we call the fall, where men and women began to elevate other voices above the voice of their creator. One of the first things, I was thinking about this, one of the first things that humankind noticed right after the fall was our bodies. One of the first things that we noticed and like a snowball gathering mass and momentum, the more that we began questioning our creator and whether or not he really knows what's best for us, we see that our bodies became more and more at the center of our identities as time went on. All right, week four. In week four, we turned a corner. We looked at what Jesus taught his disciples before he sent them out into the world and how he reminded them. He said, be as cunning as a serpent, but without the venom, without the venom. In week five, we focused on sexual identity, and we had a very candid conversation about how trusting our Father's protective and prophetic instructions around sexuality 
can save us from some of the deepest wounds and the deepest pain that people experience. Week six, we focused on gender identity, zeroing in specifically on the rapid rise of young people who are identifying as trans and the accompanying concerns about the types of treatments that are being recommended to minors. Then came last week. Last week, we looked at how Christians are uniquely positioned to create a culture where answers to extremely complex questions can be found, including questions about how we can provide spaces where people with emerging gender identities can flourish without undoing the gains that we've made when it comes to the rights of biological women. And along the way, over the course of this series, we've hosted at-the-table events, we created a resource hub at identityseries.org, and we included even more bonus material um, with our ECC mails. And we couldn't have done any of this. Couldn't have done any of this without your support as a church family. So, thank you. Thank you for not only engaging well in this important and ongoing conversation, but also thank you for your partnership. I want to invite you to write this one down too. Thank you for your partnership in this vital and ongoing ministry. This ministry, ministering to people, ministering to this culture. This is very, very, very important work. We devoted one of our at-the-table events to questions that people have about home and families. And at one of those events, at that event, the specific questions that we spent time talking around, one of them was this. When someone I care about comes out, how do we respond? How do we respond to that? And there's no simple one-size-fits-all answer to that question. But what there are are important principles that we should keep in mind. Important principles to keep in mind. And one of the most important principles of all is this. Don't break relationship. As much as it depends on you, don't break relationship. Listen to people. Try your best to understand where they're coming from. Let people know that you care. Let people know that you're committed to walking with them. Now, this doesn't mean you offer blind affirmation of every belief or every choice. It's not about that. But at least as much as it depends on you, do your best to not be the one who breaks off the connection. Because connection matters. Connection is one of our deepest human longings. Here's a great quote that sums up one of our most fundamental needs. Every newborn comes into the world looking for someone looking for her. That is so true. It's like a phone, right? You turn on your phone, what does it automatically do? It starts looking for connection. We're hardwired like that. That's who we are. We're looking for connection. Mark Yarhaus is a a voice that we've mentioned several times. He uses the word accompaniment. I love that imagery. Accompaniment. As we wrestle with something as significant as identity... We long to have someone who will accompany us in that journey, right? As believers, that imagery of accompaniment, it is so rich in our scriptures. It takes us back to the garden before the fall when humanity walked with their creator. It takes us back to the time when God walked among us as Jesus the Son. It reflects on the age that we're in now where we can have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us, changing us, accompanying us on this journey. Well, at several points throughout the series, 
We come across examples of Jesus using other imagery too, of sheep and shepherds. And one of the reasons why it is so difficult right now for our culture to trust these scriptures that are central to our understanding of everything is that so many shepherds today are amplifying that voice of the serpent in the garden. You know, who got the first two people to question their creator's words? It was this the serpent. Well, last week after the service, a mom was showing me, she was showing me pictures. She said, these are books in the children's section of my library. And she was showing me some, some titles and, and some of what was on in those books. And it's so different than what the Bible teaches. Over the course of the series, come across countless examples from the medical community, mental health community, business community, entertainment, education, social media, politics, countless examples of influential voices who are teaching a very, very different, very, very different worldview than the one that Scripture teaches, the one that our Creator reveals through His Word. And one of the most disheartening things is that there's so many pastors right now who are downplaying the centrality of Scripture. Consider this quote from a former megachurch mega pastor. He says, I, I think culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have right in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and coworkers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life. Yes to that second part. But, but here's an example of what, what you're doing here is you're, you're pitting Scripture against people rather than trying to help communicate a compelling case that these scriptures are where life is found, that these are the words of eternal life, that scripture is essential for human flourishing rather than something that, that is up and against it or doesn't matter or something that's just outdated. These words are God-breathed. They're living and active. They're sharper than a two-edged sword, discerning even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All right, so all that to say... Here's our question that we're going to wrestle with today in the final week of this series. Here's the question. When even trusted shepherds are losing their way, how do we keep from losing heart? When even trusted shepherds are losing their way, how do we keep from losing heart? You know, you look out there and we've got this ministry before us. We've got this important work for us to do. And sometimes it's like, no, how, where do you even start? And how, how, how can we even make an impact? When, when you look at all the things we're up against and how people just don't want to hear what we have to say, what you're going to get a little bit of today is Coach Chris here in the last week of this series. We started the series by saying, hey, don't jump right into the scrimmage. Let's work on the fundamentals. We've been working on the fundamentals. It's time you know, for us to go. And, and in Jesus' name, as he provides opportunities to try to do the best we can to apply this. So <laughs> the time we've got here today, I want to do the best job I can to say, all right, yeah, it looks like this is impossible, and we've got a God, and it's his work. And in his name, we can do this. So here we go. When it seems like we've hit the point of no return as a culture, when it seems like our culture is being systematically blinded to the truth that could set them free, when it seems like there's a, not just a giant out there that we can take our stone and, and hit, this giant is armor-plated, and the stone is just going to go, tink, 
That's what it feels like sometimes. Or it feels like, okay, the walls once came down. These walls are reinforced, rebarred, right? It feels like, okay, we're not just to the edge of the Red Sea right now. This is like that scene, that movie Interstellar, where you look out, you're at the water's edge, and here comes this thing. Oh, wait, that's not a mountain. That is a tsunami that's going to blow me over. It feels like that sometimes. In an age when we've got good news, but people are conditioned to see good, the good news is it's, it's phobia or it's hate. How do we keep from losing heart? Well, fortunately for us, our holy scriptures speak to that directly to the, to the people of God as we go forth into a world that doesn't necessarily want to hear what we have to say. If you have your Bible with you, let's open one last time here in this series to a section of scripture that I had forgotten how powerful this section is right here. Second Corinthians chapter four has so much to say to us today. We'll start with verse one here. If you don't have a Bible at home, we encourage you go uh, online. Bible.com has got a great free Bible app that you can download. All right. In this section of scripture, the apostle Paul explains why he, despite the tremendous opposition that he faced, he didn't lose heart. He didn't lose heart that he could do some good in Jesus name. Here we go. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not what? We do not lose heart. Verse 1 begins with a therefore. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you should always ask, what is it? Therefore. Well, in the verses leading up to this one, we are reminded that the work that we're engaged in is ultimately whose work? It's God's. If you're concerned that it rests on you, you should be concerned on that because you're not going to be able to do anything. We're the vine, he's the branches. Apart from us, we can do nothing, right? But it's not our work. It's not our work. It's his work. If you read Paul's writings, you're going to find that they are filled with references to the hardships that Paul endured. People literally tried to kill him. Literally tried to kill him. One time, mobs stoned him to the point they thought he was dead. Another time, they just about tore him to pieces. There was even a time when a group of men swore, they swore an oath, we won't eat until this guy's dead. That was their oath. It doesn't say what happened to them, by the way, but that was their oath. Well, it would have been so easy for Paul to lose heart. Most of his churches appeared to be struggling. Just about everywhere he went, he was met by significant opposition. And the culture that he was writing to in this particular letter, the church in Corinth, you think it's tough to have conversations in Minnesota. And yet, Paul had this to fall back on. Paul said, if my heart could be changed by God, he can change anybody's heart. I don't have to force this. If God can change my heart, Paul says, he can change anybody's heart. All right, let's take a look at what comes next. All right, knowing that this is God's work. Oh, this is so good. Paul did not feel the pressure to have to twist facts or omit facts or water down facts or make truth sound more appealing to a wider audience. Look what he says, verse 2. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. One of my sources said that the word translated here as tamper is a word 
that wine merchants would use when they would water down their wine. In that time and in that place, seasoned philosophers, they would often accuse the celebrity speakers of watering down the truth, of being masters in style that confused people into thinking they were getting substance. Paul says, don't practice that. Don't practice that. I love it. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to manipulate the word. In fact, don't. Don't manipulate it. Verses 3 through 4. Verses 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul's speaking from experience here. He could relate to have been blind. He was once convinced, actually, that the way of Jesus was anti-God. Paul refers to the one that had blinded him as the, quote, God of this world or the God of this age. And I love what this scholar says about the words Paul uses here. This is so good. The expression, quote, God of this age, it's striking in that it betokens both the power and limitation. And that is, that's so good. Paul describes the God of this age as a cunning, powerful, dangerous foe, but he's also got limits and his age is coming to an end. Let's read a little bit more and then I want to show you something. Verses five through six, say this. Um, Here we go. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, here's what I want to show you. Why doesn't Paul lose heart when he's aware that there is a powerful spiritual enemy who is capable of blinding people to the truth? Take a look at the contrast. This is why it's so great to study the Bible. Take a look at this contrast between verse 4 and verse 6. It it parallels each other. In verse 4, you got the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the, the light of the gospel. And then in verse 6, you got this contrast. But God, who said, let there be light, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God. God's no stranger to bring in darkness, light where there's darkness. He's no stranger to that. And with Christmas right around the corner, isn't one of the things that we celebrate is a light came into our world, into this dark world. All right, here's how one woman with the same sex attraction, she put all this. She said, this is her, after she came to Christ and left her lifestyle behind. She goes, I was now orbiting a new and better sun. It wasn't like someone came and watered things down. She goes, oh, this isn't so bad, so I'll receive it. She's like, this is better. This is worth leaving everything behind for me. Why was Rachel Gilson no longer acting on desires that the Bible puts boundaries around? Because she's found something better. Through the light that God provides, we can see things that others can't. We can see things that others don't. We can see things that others won't. We can see a creator whose ways are good and they're just and they're life-giving. We can see that we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit accompanying us 
working all things for good. And you know what else we see? And this passage is going to speak to this very directly. We see that our time is short. We forget that. We see that our time is short and we got an eternal home that's waiting there for us. Paul didn't lose heart for the joy set before him. Paul could endure hardships. And that is precisely the kind of thing that a skeptical world needs to see. They need to see that we actually believe this. They need to see that we actually believe that this is worth everything. One of the most powerful witnesses to the power of the gospel are everyday people who clearly have something inside of them that others don't. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Paul draws from an imagery that most people could relate to. And then he flips the script. In that time and in that place, people would often hide their valuables in a place that no one would think to look. But Paul flips that script. God is purposeful in all that he does. And working in and through us, as ordinary as broken vessels, he's not disguising who he is. He's showing exactly who he is. He's in us, transforming us, changing us, filling us with something that is so real and something that is so good that even circumstances can't take it away. How do we keep from losing heart? In a fallen world, I invite you to write this down. Remember that jars of clay can hold treasure. So if you're feeling like, I'm not adequate, who am I? I can't, I, I can't win a debate. I can't undo all of what's out there. You're right. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We have something real. We have something beautiful. Allow it to shine. That is so much the human experience. By the way, just on that note, is there anyone here that feels completely inadequate? (laughs) That's part of the job description for us, right? All right. I think this is what Paul is, is, is getting at earlier about... Let's not water this down. Let's not make this about our ability to open eyes that the enemy has blinded. If we make it about us exclusively, rather than trying to say, Holy Spirit, I need it to be you through me, it's just not going to work. Let's make this about, as Paul says in an earlier letter to the Corinthians, about proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified. Let's keep this about a creator whose existence we can't deny, whose heart is kind, whose words bring life, whose grace is sufficient, and we trust to lead us home. Oh, there's so much packed into this short section of Scripture. Let me show you something else I never explored before. Paul embeds a quote within this section of Scripture, a quote from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 13-15. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, quote, I believe, so I spoke, end quote, We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. All right, Paul embeds a quote here. It's a quote from Psalm 116. Why doesn't Paul lose hope? Because he's anchored to the scriptures. Anchored to the scriptures that remind us that this isn't the first time 
that God has accompanied people through difficult situations. Embedded in a scripture about not losing hope is another scripture about not losing hope. I encourage you, read all of Psalm 116. No wonder Paul likes this one. It's his experience. But here's just a couple little excerpts. This is, this is a condensed version, one through five. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I suffered distress and anguished. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord. Righteous. Our God is merciful. All right, here's the passage that Paul quotes. Psalm 116, 10. I believed. Even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. You ever looked around and you thought, man, if people would just not lie, our world would be such a different place. Just take that one thing out. And I love, I love how scripture is so raw and honest. God is real. God is at work in the midst of that. And we can consciously say to God, all right, I believe and I'm concerned. But we can also, as Paul continues on, we can say, I believe God, show me where I can help. Show me where I can help. Psalm 116 uh, says this in verse 16 and 17. Lord, I'm your servant. You've loosed my bonds. I'll offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. You know, you read Psalm 116, you can't help see why Paul could relate to this. Why he could relate to the author of that psalm and what he was going through. It was as if that poet was crafting words that also spoke to Paul's situation two centuries later. And as Paul reflects on his own experience, Paul finds himself in the same position as the psalmist in verse 10, where he says, okay, I believe, and this is hard. I believe, and I'm going to trust that you can work through me and work through my frailties. All right, back to our notes. How, when even trusted shepherds are losing their way, how do we keep from losing heart? Remember that jars of clay can hold treasure, and remember to anchor to Scripture. The deeper you dig the more that you're going to find you're not the first one to face these challenges. Challenges that seem impossible to overcome. All right, let's go back to our text one last time. Verses 16 through 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not what? He says it again. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comprehension. Remember those three words. Beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Why doesn't Paul lose heart? He doesn't lose heart for the same reason an Olympic distance runner doesn't lose heart when it starts to get hard in a race for the gold. Or a graduate student doesn't drop out when classes get hard. Or a mom doesn't enter pregnancy when it starts to get uncomfortable. Because there is something waiting at the end of the journey. There's something waiting that makes it worthwhile. And when it comes to placing our trust in Christ, what is waiting for us is, remember those three words? Beyond all comparison. All this is going to pass. All this is going to pass. What's waiting is 
eternal. If you only remember one of the three I gave you, they're all really important. Don't forget this last one. Remember the jars of clay and old treasure. Remember to anchor to scripture and remember there's no place like home. No place like home. Our eternal home. Here's another quote. Another person has the same sex attraction. There was a season in her life when her desires that she wanted to act on were holding her back. She says, how can I believe in a God that won't that won't grant me the desires of my heart. But then when the Holy Spirit opened her eyes, her whole perspective changed. Jackie Hill Perry reminds us of this. She goes, marriage is not heaven. Singleness is not hell. Our ultimate identity is very simple. We're Christians. What is waiting is so good. I can't get my head around what I'm about to tell you, but Jesus says it, so I believe it. Take a look at Matthew 22 sometime. Matthew 22, 23 through 33. If you want something that really messes with you, there's a good verse. According to Jesus, marriage, as least as we, most of us understand it, it's not going to be a thing in heaven. Which I have a hard time getting my head around that because I love my wife. I love my family. What's waiting for us is so good that this is a shadow of what's to come. Rachel Gilson puts it this way. This is so well worded. When the new heavens and new earth are ushered in, we won't need the sign anymore. We'll arrive at the destination. Gallup polling has been gathering info since the 1930s. For the first time in history, people who attend a church community are the minority in the United States. And this is interesting, as church attendance has been decreasing, what's been increasing? All kinds of harmful stuff, right? All kinds. Here's one statistic in particular that has my attention. Even though there are more ways to connect than ever before. Americans, according to Gallup, are among the loneliest people on earth. The more that we put self at the core of our identity, the more that we put self, the more isolated we become. Could it be that the things that we long for most aren't going to be found in following the trends of this age? Could it be that the things we long for most are found in the faithful pursuit of finding our identity in Christ? In the faithful pursuit of the life that's waiting for us. I just handwritten here before we started that this has got the fingerprints of that serpent all over it because what was the first thing he did in the garden, right? He separated. He separated. He turned the man and the woman against each other. As time went on, he turned brother against brother. As time went on, it's tribe against tribe. It's city against city. In our age today, it's Republican versus Democrat. It's right now with this specific topic, it's physician against physician. It's counselor against counselor. It's a parent against parent. It's student against parent. It's, you guys, he's overplayed his hand. 
There are people that are starting to wake up to this is not working. Us against, us against, us against. It's not working. So here is it, the last challenge I've got in this series. Let's give people a glimpse of a family reunion that's only a heartbeat away. A homecoming. A family reunion community that even exceeds what the best marriages can represent. It's waiting for us. Let's commit right here, right now. Let's live lives that inspire curiosity. Lives where people can see we've got something in us and in this community that's different in good ways. And as God provides opportunity, instead of us forcing it, as God provides opportunity, let's share the good news without tampering with it. We need not be ashamed for those who are sincerely seeking the gospel is the power of God for those who believe. As N.T. Wright puts it, it's a message from their creator, God, the one whose image all human beings were made in, the one of whom every human being at least is dimly aware, and I love this last phrase, like a message from an almost forgotten relative, awakening memories and hopes. Will there be some that choose darkness over light? Yes, the majority. But will there also be others whose steps of faith are going to lead them to the front porch where a father is waiting, who's going to jump up and run to meet them? Absolutely. Welcoming them home. Will the road ahead be hard? Yes, very. But are the challenges waiting for us bigger than they are? Absolutely. That shouldn't have been a but, that should be an and. And as we said from day one of the series, despite all that, you're not alone. You're not alone. You got brothers and sisters. And most importantly, we've got a loving God who's going to accompany us every step of the way. Here's one last quote from someone who took a step of faith and began the journey of finding a new identity who let her creator say who she is. If you're tuning out, if you're multitasking at home, this is worth it. Come back. (laughs) You'll see why. What you're calling me to do, I can't do on my own. But I know enough about you to know that you will help me. I said to God, my new friend. Normally, we commemorate communion on first Sundays. But there's no rule in the Bible that says it's limited to that. What a great way to close this time together. There's so much the Bible doesn't say about the sacrament we're about to participate in. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't give a specific type of bread or wine. What it does do is it says, examine yourselves. If you can sincerely pray these prayers that we're about to pray, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, today you can be welcomed home. Welcomed home. For those of you who are at home, After we pray these prayers, take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, and receive it. And as you do, remember that this is the body and blood of Christ given for you. 
And right here today at Studio Church, we won't have any ushers. We want this to be a conscious decision that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, to your heart. If you'd like to join us while these songs are going on, we invite you to come forward and receive. So let's prepare ourselves for this moment now. Please join me in these prayers. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Lord, we are so thankful that you've called us to be brothers and sisters, that you've called us to be part of this family. Lord, we're so thankful that this doesn't depend on our ability. It depends on our (laughs) willingness to surrender ourselves to you and to be open to what you would say and do through us. Lord, we pray that in this moment, this could be a uniting moment for us, that we could all recognize that all of us have things that we need to bring before you and that you're a God who loves and cares and welcomes all of us home. So Lord, we now unite our voices in this prayer and then in these songs being brought together by something that you did on our behalf. Here's the prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.